Um, would you now please open, uh, please open your Bibles uh, with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and stand out of respect for God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll, we'll be reading the first 10 verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we are treading in deep waters today. We are looking at things almost too wonderful for words. If you had not made it clear in your word, we would not dare to speak of these things. We ask that you would give us great wisdom as we look at this doctrine today. We ask that you would humble us as you help us to see the glories of your saving grace at work in the salvation of your people. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Only you can do this. We pray that you would encourage us, that you would cause us to grow in our love for you and our desire to take your gospel to the nations as, as a result of the glorious truth of your irresistible grace. Help us to look at the text and see what is there. Help us to have our minds conform to the word of God by the word of God. Shape our imaginations and our minds with the water of your word. Help us to know what the Bible says and to love it. Help me to speak carefully and truly as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What happens when God speaks? What happens when the Lord of all the universe says something? It happens. Whatever he says, whatever he decrees, comes to pass. He brought everything into being by speaking. He can cause bread to appear with the dew every morning for 40 years. He can cause, call water from a rock. He can bring the dead to life. Can anyone resist his holy will? Can anyone, upon hearing God speak, remain as they are? Can anyone, once their eyes are really open to the truth of God's holiness, their own sin, and the way of redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ, say, yeah, I'd rather not. I see the beauty of Christ. I see that he died for sinners. I see that without him I am bound for hell, but I choose hell and no one can change my mind. Let me ask a different question. Can anyone who has a normal, healthy fear of death Continue down a road to certain senseless death once you have been made aware that the danger is there. That is, if you were walking over a bridge and all of a sudden someone came running past you from behind with a bridge out sign in their hand, they brush past you, nail a sign to a post right in front of you, turn around, grab your arm, and say, don't keep walking. You can't see it right now, but the bridge is caved in in five feet. If you keep walking, you will fall to your death. The only way not to die is to turn back. And then they shine a light to show you the giant hole in the bridge. A few more steps, 
and you would have surely fallen to your death. Would your response be, nah, I'm not turning back. I will not listen to your warning. I'm going to continue on my walk. I like the breeze on my face, and if I fall, the breeze will be better. Of course not. Of course you would not. Uh, Of course you would stop. Of course we would turn back immediately without a second thought, and we would be grateful for the warning. We wouldn't be angry at the one who warned us and even grabbed a hold of us. We wouldn't accuse them of restraining our free will. We would thank them wholeheartedly for saving our life and follow them back to safety. The question we are considering this morning is, is grace ultimately resistible or irresistible? That is, when God God calls us by name to come alive, can we stay dead? A secondary question is, do we cooperate in this? Do we cooperate with saving grace? But we'll get to that later. All that we've been talking about for the last several weeks seems to hinge on this question. Jacob Arminius and his followers from the beginning have said that the whole controversy reduces itself to this question. Is the grace of God an irresistible force, or can it be rejected by one whom God has bestowed it upon? To ask the question another way, can man ultimately reject God and his effective grace? That is, is the, man, is the will of man ultimately stronger than the will of God? My contention is that Scripture shows us clearly that those whom the Lord decided in eternity past to save, those for whom the Lord Jesus Christ effectively died, will be saved. We could pile up Bible verses, whole chapters of books, entire themes throughout Scripture, beginning in Genesis and carrying through the end of Revelation. But I want to work through three texts, each showing that belief in this doctrine, the doctrine of irresistible grace, is necessary not only by logic, but because it is right there in the text. I want to be careful here and say that the belief in this doctrine is not necessary for salvation. We are not saved by believing the right doctrines in the right order. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But at the same time, doctrine does matter. Doctrine matters because truth matters. Truth can be known. And if it can be known, it ought to be both sought after and loved when it is found. Not as an end in itself, but as a way to know the God to whom the doctrine points to. Doctrine is meant to drive us to worship. It is meant to cause us to say, along with Paul, what then shall we say in response to these things? And then it is meant to cause us to sing. Right doctrine leads to right worship. Right doctrine ensures that we actually worship the true God, the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. If we find something in Scripture that is clearly there, there, and if we see a truth about God, but we decide we don't like it, we will not believe it or we we will not worship a God who is like that. At that point, we are no longer worshiping the God of the Bible, but a God of our own making. God cares how we think of him. If he did not, he would not have revealed so much of himself in his word. He would not have given us minds to think and hearts that are moved. We have minds to know the truth and hearts to love it. But our minds and our hearts, how we think and what we love, must be shaped by the scriptures. We must love the Bible. We must love not only the idea of the Bible, but every single word of it. And, and we must want to know what every single word means. When we we come to the Bible, our goal should be, I want to know what the Bible says, what it means, 
and I want to know, I want to love all of it. Even if it means I must change my mind I, uh, on, things I've thought of, uh, on things I have thought my whole life. Doctrine matters also because what we believe affects how we live. One pastor says, our theology, what we believe about God, comes out our fingertips. It must. What we believe and what we love affects how we live. In the last few weeks, as, as, as we've walked through the doctrines of grace, I hope you've seen how these doctrines are, are more than just ivory tower thoughts. Knowing and understanding these truths should cause our, our awe for God to grow. They should cause our estimation of ourselves to lower like a lot. We contribute nothing to our own salvation but the sin that made it necessary. We have nothing to offer. Yet, God loves you, Christian. That should blow our minds. It should cause us to, to worship more deeply. It should amaze us that the creator of the universe, the infinite one, chose you, loves you, saved you, sustains you, and continually cares for you. These things matter. It matters that on our own, we are dead. We are in a state of total inability. That is, all people are really dead in our trespasses and sins and cannot respond positively to the gospel. It matters that God chose to save some of these dead people, not because of anything they do or will potentially do, but solely because he is gracious beyond what we can comprehend. It matters that God chooses to save his particular people and that he actually saves them. Jesus died on the cross for his people, not just a vague notion of people who might choose him. He died for his bride with purpose to actually save her. Not just maybe make it possible if everything goes just right. Jesus accomplished salvation for you, Christian. It is bought and paid for, stamped to telestai, finished, paid in full. This truth should make us the most humble, joyful, bold people in all the world. We should fear absolutely nothing because in Christ, we have already defeated the scariest thing there is. We have in Christ beaten sin and death. Nothing can touch us. Our God is sovereign. He has chosen to be our father. And so we are invincible until he calls us home, which will be way better than anything we can imagine. This is incredible grace, grace that should cause us to sing. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in his life and death and resurrection, Christ has accomplished our redemption. But for our redemption to do us any good, it must be applied. And that is what we are talking about this morning. How Christ's work is applied to us in time, which is where the doctrine of irresistible grace or effectual call comes in. One historic confession of faith that defines the effectual call of God like this. In God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those he has predestined to life. He has called them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet, he does all this in such a way as they come completely freely, since they are made willing by his grace. So the effective call is this. God calls dead sinners by name, and they come to life. In the words of Ezekiel 36, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. These new hearts God gives us now want to listen and obey the God who graciously gave them. It is at this point I need to bring up and address some objections to this doctrine. There are two major categories of objections. First is that God calls everyone and all the implications of that. If if God calls everyone, then why do we need to talk about irresistible grace? If God calls everyone and not everyone comes, then grace is by definition resistible. The second objection is that irresistible grace and election in general, for that matter, (coughs) makes us robots. If we really don't have a choice in the matter, then there is no real real responsibility for us to preach. God will save who, who, who he will save. I'll answer the first objection with this. If God has a chosen people, and he does, then God saves his chosen people by calling them effectively through the proclamation of the gospel. As God calls his people, he makes them alive, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Before God calls us, we are dead. And then God calls us and makes us alive. How does he do that? He draws us. He calls us by name. And then we come. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. Here Jesus is answering the grumbling and rejection of the Pharisees. The day before this, Jesus had fed 5,000 men and women, or men along with women and children, with five loaves and two fish. Then he made some dramatic claims about being the bread of life, the bread of God, the one whom the Father sent into the world. Jesus fed people bread they did not make or earn on a mountain, bread that pointed beyond the physical bread to a deeper reality. And he did it in a way that should remind us of the Lord feeding another group of people in a similar situation. This bread, this manna, was meant to point the people beyond the bread to the giver of life. Now the Pharisees are grumbling, just like the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. And Jesus answered them in verse 43, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus' response to the Pharisees and their grumbling is a direct and frank assessment of their unbelief. You don't believe in me because you won't, and you won't because you can't. Verse 44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. This is a humility-inducing reality check. Our inner Laura jumps up and yells, objection, I can do whatever I very well please. I can decide to choose or not to choose Christ. Anyone can, or why preach? Why make the offer of the gospel to to everyone if not everyone has an equal opportunity to respond? Are we not supposed to call everyone to repentance and faith? Are we not to go into all the world and make disciples? To this I say, you're not arguing with me. I just read what Jesus said. There are basically two schools of thought on what this verse means. One says that God draws everyone a little, enough to make it possible for you to cooperate with his grace and be saved. The Holy Spirit does all he can to influence each person to turn to God. He gives us a boost, but we must take it the rest of the way. 
He cannot produce repentance and faith in us. We must do that. He knocks at the door and makes sure we know he is there, and then he waits like a perfect gentleman for us to open the door because there's no doorknob on the outside. He knocks, but we can refuse to come to the door. We are sick in bed, but if we can crawl to the door and open it, he will regenerate us and we will be born again. God and man must work together in order for us to be saved. Salvation is not an equal partnership, but it is a partnership. It's not 50-50. It's more like 90-10 or even 99-1. The problem with this idea is that that is not either what this verse says or the whole Bible says. Jesus says no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. Each word is important here, but everything here hangs on the word draw. Who is right in this whole debate hangs on whether this word draw here means to woo or entice or to pull with enough force so as to make something come. The word draw here, if it is used as it is everywhere else in Scripture, means the second one. In John 44, the word draw is the same word that was used when Paul and Silas were dragged in front of the court in Acts. It is the same word used for when Peter drew his sword in the garden before he swung it around and lopped off Malchus's ear. This is the same word that is used for drawing water from a well. R.C. Sproul has the best illustration, I think. He says, when you draw water from a well, you don't just stand at the top and say, here, water, 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 and expect the water on its own, in its own power, to jump out of the well into your bucket. No, you have to go down with your bucket and take the water. That is the drawing Jesus had in mind here. If this is true, that when the, when the Father calls us, we come. When the Father calls us, the Holy Spirit actually applies the salvation accomplished by the Son to the people of God. He grants us faith and repentance. He opens our ears to really hear the Word of God, to really hear the call of God. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. He makes us alive, and as we live, we have faith. This is the difference between us being sick in bed and hearing a knock at the door, and Lazarus being dead in his tomb. When Lazarus died and was buried in his tomb, all he could do was lie there, wrapped in his grave clothes, decaying. Four days later, he suddenly heard his name called. Then he is commanded to come out. Lazarus was dead. And then he came to life and obeyed. He had no other choice. He heard the voice of God, and he had to obey it. But it was not a robotic obedience. Lazarus was in a tomb surrounded by death and decay. Not only did he have to obey, he wanted to obey. He was in a grave surrounded by death. Of course he wanted to come out. This is what the confession means when it says, yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. This is also the, the answer to the second objection to irresistible grace, that it makes us robots that we cannot freely choose. If we, the thought that if we cannot freely choose, we do not really make the choice. And if that's the case, it doesn't count. If we cannot freely choose, it means that we are coerced into love and obedience. But as we saw with Lazarus, it is not a matter of being made to do something against our will. It is not, made, it is not that we are made to do something we would rather not do. It is not that we are dragged, kicking and screaming into heaven. It is that we are made alive together with Christ, and now we want to obey. We are, for the first times in our lives, actually alive. We are actually free to do what we could not do before. My wife, Melissa, plays the piano. She's teaching our daughter to play. It's amazing to watch. I'm about as musical as a hammer. I have no rhythm, and I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Technically, both Melissa and I have the same freedom to play piano. 
I have fingers that move, but I am restricted by my nature. I am free to play, but I cannot play. She who is trained and has been playing for years is free to play any piece of music you put in front of her. So who is really free when it comes to playing the piano? She is free, and I am bound. Or to change the metaphor, if you put a bale of hay in front of a starving lion, he would be free to eat it. But at the same time, he could not eat it. It is against his nature. In order for the hay to do him any good at all, his nature and his stomach would have to be changed. And if it could be changed by some miracle, the lion would go from seeing the the hay as worthless and only good to be walked on to seeing it as life-giving and sustaining and good. This is what happens when we are called. We are regenerated. We are made new. What we previously only heard with physical ears, we now hear with spiritual ones because we now have the mind of Christ. If you're still with me in John 6, 44, you see we still have the second half of the verse to go. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the other half of the effectual call. If you have been called, you will come. And if you come, you have been called. Christian, you now have the mind of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You have been made alive. Your nature has been changed, and you now love what you once hated, and you hate the sin you once loved. This is far from robotic obedience. It has nothing to do at all with coercion. It has nothing to do at all with being forced against your will and everything to do with a change in affections, a change in what you love. In the same way as you would love the person who told you the bridge is out and saved you from falling, so much more do we now love the God who made us alive together with Christ. So now not only are are we now able to come, we, we want to come. We want to sprint to the Lord who saved us and be with him forever. We want to worship And we will worship, and we will be kept. If you look up the page, just a few verses, to verse 37 in John 6. You see, all Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is good news piled on top of good news. This is the gospel that causes us to sing. Jesus came to save sinners, and if you believe in him, he came to save you. Do not spend one second worrying if you are among the called. If you desire to come to Christ, come. If you want to obey the gospel command to repent and believe, do. If you want to, you are called to. If the good news of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is sweet to you, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you want to, something inside you has already been changed because the gospel is the stench of death to the natural man. But to to the believer, to the called ones, it is the gospel that gives life and hope to those with ears to hear. To those, who not do, to those who do not have ears to hear, it is utter foolishness. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to them who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How then does the call work? How does the call of God go out? How is it that he draws his people to himself? Flip with me to the second text here, John 10. 
For the sake of time, I just want to read a few verses in a survey of the main point, that Jesus knows his sheep, that he calls them by name, that his sheep know his voice and will follow him. So look at verses two through five. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Verses 14 through 16. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. In verses 25 through 30, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. God calls his people to himself by his voice. The first thing we see with Jesus, the good shepherd, and his sheep is that there are sheep who are Jesus' sheep. There are particular sheep that are his They belong to him. They hear his voice and they follow him. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd and they come to him. When I was a kid, we had sheep. We also had almost every other kind of animal on four legs that can be found in a barn. But we had several sheep. I was not an especially observant farmer, but my dad could pick out an individual sheep from across the pasture and give you the whole history of the thing. Who would mom was, who its dad was, like six generations back. It was absurd. I, they, they all looked the same to me, like clouds with legs, but he knew each one. When I came over to help chore after I lived on my own, I would call and call for the sheep. They wouldn't pay any attention to me. But it seemed like all my dad had to do was clear his throat and they'd come running. What was the difference? The sheep knew the voice of their shepherd and they obeyed. How does our good shepherd call his sheep? How do God's people hear his voice? Primarily by the reading and preaching and teaching of his word. This is why we preach. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we sing the Bible. Because God uses means. God uses people preaching and praying for his purposes. God calls his people to himself by his word. But if God's word is effective, if his voice calls his sheep to himself, then why isn't everyone saved? Is it because man's will is strong enough to resist the call of God? Or is it something else? The Puritans spoke of two kinds of calls. An outward general call, this is what we do when we preach. This is the preacher's job, to call all people everywhere to repent and trust in Christ. That is our job. If we fail at this job, we truly fail. The outward call is the faithful preaching of the word of God. The word of God, not something we make up on our own. I've been a part of many youth events where the speaker gave an emotional, an, an emotional message and appeal with every good intention, I have no doubt, but not one in which the word of God played anything more than a secondary role. 
The message pulled on the heartstrings and called for a commitment to a vague Jesus who wanted your life to be better. And what teenager doesn't want a better life? People flocked to the front in response to the call, many of whom I knew. And I can't think of more than one or two who are still in the church. I don't mean the church I was a part of, but any church at all. This is not the the call we are talking about this morning. Men and women can be moved emotionally. They can raise a hand or walk an aisle or even pray a repeat-after-me prayer and still be dead in their sin. People can be moved by the emotion of music and the 16th verse of Just As I Am and not be acting in faith. This, by the way, is why we do not do altar calls. We do not want to give anyone false assurance of their salvation. This is not to say that the Lord never uses these means to call his people to himself. But we do want to be sure that it is the Spirit of God in conjunction with the Word of God that is acting upon sinners to bring them to repentance and not anything that we are doing. We are not intentionally boring. We do not, but we do want to adorn the gospel with the way we preach and sing. We want to do things with excellence. But we do not want to in- manipulate emotions. Because there is another call, an inward call, an effective call. One that brings a sinner to life. One that brings a prodigal to his senses. One that wakes up a rebel and causes him to lay down his arms and surrender to the sovereign God. This call comes from the Spirit of God. This call is irresistible, but not in a way that drags the sinner kicking and screaming against his will into heaven. As we saw earlier, before we do anything, we are regenerated. We are made alive to the beauty of the gospel. And now we want to come. The second thing we see in John 10 with Jesus and his sheep is that the shepherd calls his sheep out to himself by name. Isn't that glorious? By name, Christian. If you are a Christian, it is because at some point in time, God said, I have chosen you from before the foundation of the world, and right now I call you to me. Come. And you came. This may look different for different sheep. God may have called you out of high-handed sin and rebellion. He may have saved you out of terrible sin and suffering. You know the exact moment he saved you. You can point to the spot and the date and the time. If he saved you in this way, praise be to God. He has brought you from death to life. Or God may have put you in a family that loved the Lord and taught you about God and his word from the time you were born. And you have never really known a day of conscious rebellion. You have always believed. And you have always wanted to please the Lord. If that is the case, praise be to God. He has brought you from death to life. In any case, in the case of every single Christian, a miracle has happened. A person who was dead in sin has been brought to life. Every time someone is saved, the words from the hymn we sang this morning are true. Long my imprisoned spirit lay lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If your eyes have been opened to your sin, if your eyes have been opened to the glory of Christ and the beauty of his gospel, you will rise and follow the Lord who calls you. We see this throughout the whole Bible. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram, Abraham, then still Abram, to leave his house and go where he is sent. And Abraham went. Abraham heard God and obeyed. Abraham went from being an idolatrous pagan to following the true and living God. It was not Abram who sought God, it was the Lord who sought him out and called him, and then he obeyed. God called Isaac and Jacob and the whole nation of Israel. He called Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David. He called prophets and kings, shepherds and warriors, and everyone whom the Lord called, obeyed. 
in the New Testament. Jesus called his disciples and they followed him. It was not only that Jesus was a charismatic leader, one to whom people were drawn. These were men who, were, who stayed because the Spirit had opened their eyes after everyone else had left. These were the men who preached boldly after Pentecost in the face of persecution and death. They preached because they were changed. They didn't just one day wake up and decide to die for the faith. Their faith was not sustained by their own teeth-gritting toughness. It was a gift from the beginning, and it was sustained as a gift all the way through. So what use is this doctrine? Why spend time talking about it? Why should we care? The first use is the humility that it should produce in us. If this doctrine of effectual calling is true, and it is, then we should, of all people, be the most humble. Because it means we had nothing to do with our salvation. Not the tiniest bit. What made the difference between us and someone else who does not believe, we learn, is not us and our wisdom, but God and His free grace. There are many instances of, of siblings raised in the same family, where one believed and one didn't. What made the difference? If you are a believer and, and someone next to you is not, what is the deciding factor? The answer to this question is very important. It reveals a lot of what we think about God. Do we believe that it was us who made the difference? Our wisdom, our decision to have faith, or even our common sense to take Jesus up on his offer to believe in him and escape hell? Or was it God, through sheer grace alone, that made the difference? This is the option that gives God most glory. If God alone saves us with no help from him, he gets every drop of glory to be had in salvation. If we cooperate with our salvation by producing faith in ourselves, or by working together with God to be born again, then in some way, even if it is very small, we share in the glory. We share in the credit, and that is not something the Lord will do. When he saves his people, he does it for his glory, glory alone. Isaiah 48, 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This helps us remember who saved us and why he did it. It helps me to remember that were it not for sheer, the sheer matchless grace of God, I would be the worst of sinners. I would be in full rebellion against God if he had left it up to me to come to him. Even if he had done 99% of the work and all I had to do was full, fall down over the finish line, I would find a way to fall backwards. It is God alone who saves alone. This does not mean that after our salvation we will be as passive as we were before. Lazarus had nothing to do with being brought back to life, but after he was resuscitated, he obeyed. In the same way, after we are regenerated, after we are born again, we obey. We can obey, and we want to obey to the glory of God. The next use of this doctrine is an encouragement for those who preach and teach and share the gospel. There are those who say that if you believe these things, if you believe the doctrines of grace, you will no longer evangelize. You won't go out into the world with the gospel. What's the point? If God has decided already, if, if the people themselves are not the ones doing the initial choosing, then why preach? Why pray? Is it not a disincentive to go? No, I say. It is exactly the opposite. Knowing that God has a people and that they will come when the word of God is preached is the most encouraging. Knowing that the preaching of the gospel has a guaranteed effect to bring those whom God has chosen for himself or to harden those already opposed to God. It is the only thing that keeps gospel preachers going. It is so freeing to know that it is not on me to close the, to close the sale. I couldn't sell ice water in the desert. But the word of God will be effective in the way that he sovereignly chooses. 
knowing this allows me to sleep at night. It allows preachers who are better than me to go on for years and years in the face of discouragement and opposition to their message. Because they know that if they continue to preach, God's people will be brought in and built up. The sheep will hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and come running home. It was this confidence that launched the modern missionary movement. William Carey, the first great missionary from the English-speaking world to India, spent seven years preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching the Word of God before he baptized the first convert. Seven years. Can you imagine leaving everything on a one-way trip to preach the gospel and seeing no fruit for a year? Two years, four years, six years, seven years, working every day and seeing no results. If Kerry would not have been convinced that the Bible was true, that at the cross Jesus actually redeemed people from every tongue and tribe and nation, that when they heard the voice of Jesus Christ in his preaching, the Lord's people would come. If he did not believe this, he could not have continued in his work. He could not have sustained it in the face of opposition from the people of India and even his own family. But he kept at it, knowing that the word of God would do it. He translated the whole Bible into six languages and parts of the Bible into 26 others so that the people of India could hear the call of the Lord in their own language. The Lord has his people and his people will come. But it is not our job to to try to figure out who that is. It is only our job to take the gospel to everyone with ears. Charles Spurgeon once said, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. But since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will. And when whosoever believes, I know he is one of the elect. We must preach, and God will sort it out. At the end of the first, sem- the first sermon after Pentecost, we see it in, in Acts 2, 37-41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter told the entire crowd to repent, to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Why? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are fall off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And that day the Lord called 3,000 souls to himself. Still, so what, you ask I'm not a preacher. I'm not an evangelist. How does this doctrine help me on a Tuesday afternoon when the kids are grumpy and the sky is gray or I just got really bad news or I failed again? As we close, I'd like to briefly look at one more text. Turn with me to Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love the Lord are the same ones who are called. This is a great and glorious promise to the people of God. But undergirding this promise are the next two verses. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Those who are called according to his purpose. What does being called by God have to do with this assurance of God working good? It is this. Since all whom God calls, he also justifies and glorifies, it is clear that God will let nothing stop his ultimate and good purposes for his called ones from coming to pass. It is a sovereign God who saves sinners. And it is is the same sovereign God who works all things for the good of his own. Those whom he has called and who who then will love him, guaranteeing their salvation, now, now as well as their future glory and joy. Because... God calls to salvation, and because God's calling is effectual to both save now and forever, we we can be confident that nothing can hinder God's good purposes. He will fulfill them for his own to the end. We can be sure of this because he is for us. And we know he is for us because he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. If he has done that, he will give us all we need. We can count on him. Glory be to to God for the salvation of sinners. Glory be to the Father who in love chose a particular people, people to give to his Son before the foundation of the world. Glory be to the Son who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Glory be to the Holy Spirit who applies the finished work of Christ to the people of God by regeneration and after that strengthening and sanctifying us until we were brought Father, thank you for your sovereign grace. Thank you for your regenerating grace. Thank you for your sustaining grace. We praise you for the salvation of your people. We praise you for calling us through your gospel. We thank you that because you have called us, you will also keep us. Help us to learn to love you more. Help us by your grace to trust you. Help us to be humble and gracious. Help us to take the gospel to every corner of the earth. We pray that you would use us in our work as you call your people to yourself. Help us to preach and teach and share the gospel with confidence, knowing that you will save your people through the foolishness of preaching. Help us, who who by grace have been made alive together with Christ, walk in the works you have prepared for us to do. Help us to obey for our good and for your glory.